0: Hello. Now, I know this is meant to be a pub lock-in rather than a podcast about the news, and God knows I wish we were at the pub. I wish all of us were. But these are extraordinary times we're living through, and it's perverse to ignore that fact, so I wanted to record some off-script episodes which we'll be putting out alongside our regular chats. For some reason, this bloody thing has started playing back some rubbish.
1: Oh, right. Right. Where were we? I forgot. I have too.
0: Because we're still doing the government's bidding and not relaxing in a pub somewhere, the five of us who've got together today are doing it at a distance, which is actually appropriate, because we want to talk about what social distancing and the rest of this nightmare is doing to us. I don't mind admitting I've been depressed, but how common is that? And how many people is it worth making dejected to save some lives? Daisy Fancourt is working on a project at University College London to discover what the social and psychological effects of COVID-19 have been. Marjorie Wallace runs a mental health charity called SANE. Miranda Walpert is a professor investigating mental health for the Wellcome Trust. And Paul Farmer runs another mental health charity, Mind. He's convinced there's a crisis on right now. Daisy, let's start with you since you're running a study on the subject. What's the big picture? Is mental well-being getting worse? I imagine it is.
2: So it's true that we have seen mental health has been worse for adults in the UK over the last nine months and studies are suggesting that uh, in that first lockdown period in the spring about 50% more people than normal were experiencing mental distress. So Whereas on average, we find about 18% of the population experiences these problems normally. This was around 27% just after lockdown came in. And it has improved quite a bit since, but we're still finding that more people than usual are experiencing psychological challenges.
0: What do you make of the fact that there has been that improvement?
2: I think that the improvement is partly due to uh, the uncertainty around this pandemic uh, being settled a little bit earlier on uh, by the instigation of strict measures like lockdown. A lot of people's mental health interestingly got worse in the lead up to lockdown coming in but seemed to stabilise once we had that security of, for many of us, being at home, being much safer from the virus. But I think what we've started to see over the last few months is uh, an an increase again in these symptoms of things like depression and anxiety, especially as the virus levels have got worse, but also as I think some of the adversities from earlier on in this pandemic, like bereavements or job losses or financial difficulties, have started to take more of a toll on individuals.
0: Has the very fact of lockdown itself caused a spike in mental illness?
2: Interestingly, no, and I think this was something that was quite unexpected with this pandemic, because if we look back at previous epidemics, so things like SARS, MERS, H1N1, what we found was that if people went into quarantine because they had symptoms, then their mental health got worse over that quarantine period. But actually what we found this time was that mental health was worse in the lead up to our lockdown periods, but actually improved generally for most people during that lockdown. So I think we have to recognise that this is a different type of epidemic from previously. Everybody was going into lockdown. So that fear of missing out that we know provides a big psychological challenge was removed to a certain extent. But I also think there there was a sense that there were new measures that were coming in to try and support people. There was a global effort around it. So the isolation from previous epidemics wasn't quite felt on that same scale.
0: So you reckon a lot of that is fear, do you?
2: That seemed to be the main driver earlier on in the pandemic was the fear about the virus itself, but that's really come down a lot. It's decreased by about 50% in the UK. We're now finding that the majority of people, about two thirds of us, are not really that worried about the virus itself. What seems to have taken over is the predominant worries for people, are the wider impact that the virus has had on their lives, whether that's disrupting their work, whether that's causing issues with finances, whereas it's affected schooling or education for young people whether it's led people to feel more isolated from family and friends in other parts of the country or the world. These are the issues that seem to have taken over as the drivers of that poorer mental health.
0: Now, Marjorie, you run SANE, the mental health charity.
1: What
2: are you
0: seeing?
1: Yes, it's very interesting. In the first lockdown, we did a sort of a survey of the what callers were saying, what they were feeling. What we found was that there was obviously high anxiety levels, but we were getting many more 80% new callers who hadn't been in touch or hadn't been in touch with services before, who were not handling things very well. But the most worrying thing we found was that a third of all our callers were talking about suicidal plans. Now. We often have callers talking about suicidal thoughts, but very rarely so many talking about suicidal plans and a big increase in the numbers of people saying that they were resorting to self-harm. Now, some of that would have been due to the loneliness. I I I'm just reading one caller's uh, report and he's saying, the only time I hear my own voice is when you call me because that's saying we call people back and every week we're calling him. And, uh, But other people like a girl who had been discharged, having attempted suicide, saying, I don't dare take up the time of the services. There are people on ventilators and I have suicidal thoughts. And yet she is obviously just as much at risk as the people on the ventilators. So we've had a lot of um, fear, a lot of uh, loneliness and a lot of this double whammy that if you are actually locked down, um, but you have the other lockdown in your own thoughts and fears. And it's a sort of um, the combination of those that has been making people call us in great distress.
0: So do we know the extent to which people are suffering more from fear of the virus or from the effects of the lockdown, loneliness and so on?
1: Well, isolation itself, people can often live with because, you know, they can adapt and they can... um, you know, they, they, they can make contact as long as they can make connection. The, the three words that are always said from people who call us is that they feel trapped, they feel alone, and that uh, you feel disconnected. And it's that sense of disconnection that is um, the most worrying. And if you've got very severe depression, I'm sure you, Jamie, know, and I certainly know from having had it. The one thing you can't do is make that effort to pick up the phone, to make that connection. And uh, I think it's the combination of those that is increasing the effect of loneliness. Because, you know, loneliness is a killer. And it hastens premature death by about 42 percent, according to some studies. You know, people, as I say, getting feeling more disconnected. Um, It's harder to keep contact with family. It's harder to make uh, contact, keep contact with friends. But also what they're finding is that if they do have some form of mental illness, when they reach out to their whatever their services are, their psychiatric services are, in several quotes, they've said they've simply disappeared because there are not enough people to do home visits. There are not enough people to make the calls. And in any case, people are finding, and I think this is a whole subject we need to explore, that this virtual, this digital connection doesn't really reach down to that fundamental human psyche that we have, that we need to make contact, you know, one-on-one eye contact to eye contact, with a person whom we trust.
3: Perhaps I could add a little bit to that, uh, Jeremy. Um, I think from what we 've heard from people with uh, who 've accessed the mind services is that this period is if you 've already got a mental health problem, then you really have been significantly affected by this, and as you heard from Daisy earlier, your mental health has got worse, but we also know that there 's a whole group of people who were previously at risk of developing mental health problems who are now uh, who have now tipped over into actually having clinical needs and I think a lot of that connects to what Marjorie was saying about the importance of connection. Uh, we the One of the words of our year is almost certainly going to be self-isolation and that very phrase is bad for our mental health. It's uh, on the whole it, we are connect, we need connection in order to maintain and sustain our well-being. The protective factors of being able to hug a grandchild or play in a team sport are really important for us. So it's important that we uh, boost the support that we're able to give people in that way. Paul, what do
0: people tell you about the effects of digital communications on them?
3: Well, for many people, um, digital communication has been a lifeline. Um, our local minds turn their services upside down within a matter of days, from predominantly a face-to-face service to telephone, Zoom, all kinds of other digital means. And so for many people, they've said that it's actually really kept them in touch and in contact with, you know, with, with other people and with the mental health services that we've been able to provide. But for other people, that loss of face-to-face has been really significant. And I think particularly for people with more serious mental health problems, people who have found it very, very difficult to go out. They feel anxious, afraid. They feel as though they're not, they're not a bur- they don't want to be a burden on services as well. Yes, it's been important for us to have these social connections, but, but, again, but equally, I think there remains a, an important part of our ability to be able to connect with our three-dimensional human selves. Marjorie, just tell us, what is depression?
1: Depression is, in the dictionary, defined your lower spirit, your downcast. But this can be uh, particularly, it's a very big spectrum. So people can have days when they feel that they're disappointed, they're downcast, things are not going well, uh, they feel blue. Um, But that is not the kind of uh, other end of the spectrum. And the other end of the spectrum, I like to think of it like the winter of the mind. It's where everything is frozen and paralyzed, that people feel that there is no end to this uh, barren landscape, this frozen landscape in which they are trapped. And it's a very, very horrible feeling because uh, they feel so they're out of contact with the real world sometimes and that they can never make that contact. And uh, and people feel a bit numb. They often feel they lack emotion. It's sometimes described as sort of heavy weights of, particles sort of going on the soul and uh, it's a lack of pleasure maybe in taking what they were taking pleasure in and um, it's sometimes so severe that people just simply can't get out of bed in the morning uh, they or they can't eat or they can't leave the home. So um, I, I think I'd like to look at, uh, if I can just pay some reference to uh, Miranda's uh, of well, relation, Lewis Warpert, he wrote a marvellous book called Malignant Sadness. I actually gave him the title, which he acknowledged, but what he was saying there is that there's a difference between the ordinary melancholy that we all feel and sadness that we all feel in our lives and malignant sadness. And it's a bit like when cancer cells, which are working perfectly healthy in the body, suddenly turn tailcoat and attack the body. And in this case, it's the cells and the, the mind, the thoughts and feelings and the fears and people's minds, turn tailcoat and hijack their minds. And uh, they feel that they're going out of control. It's a very frightening feeling. And at that point, people, with very severe depression are not really often able to reach out for help uh, and they're not able to use a digital communication. They actually need a very patient contact with somebody who will just take them through that dark night of the soul.
4: Yes, I think it's really helpful to remember or to remind people that uh, what we call the symptoms of depression are not related to some underlying other things separate from those symptoms. But those thoughts, feelings, and behaviours that Marjorie so powerfully described are themselves what we have put together as a sort of consensus of what we call depression. But there's no underpinning biological thing that we can point to, or any other any part of the brain, or part of the body. So it's really important to remember that, that the experience may be very different for different people. And I think Marjorie's very powerfully portrayed the range of things it may be. Um, But I think it's important to remember that that may may vary for individuals and that some people may feel very restless, some people may feel very tired. Some people may eat hugely, some people may just stop eating completely. So it's a a very uh, uh, wide-ranging choice of things that people experience in this regard. And so it's important to remember that.
0: It's interesting, it seems to me, that when you look at the age groups here, We've penalised the young to protect the old again.
2: I think from the data that's coming through from research, that's certainly what we are seeing, unfortunately. So there were initially concerns about older adults going into this whole experience, that they'd be the ones who'd be worst affected by lockdowns, by isolation. But actually, it's been the opposite. Younger groups, particularly those aged 18 to 30, have had the worst mental health across this pandemic. And that's not just in the UK. We're seeing that across countries in Europe, Cuba, China, Iran, it's coming out internationally as a problem. And I think there are a number of reasons for this, including the fact that unfortunately, these groups can have worse mental health outside of pandemic situations, but also that younger adults have been worst affected by some of the adversities from this pandemic, whether that's job losses, financial issues, being cut off from family, facing displacement from their homes, or also feeling like these very formative years of their lives have been very badly disrupted.
0: Does it have to do with young people being more sociable?
2: I'm not sure if it's that they're naturally more sociable, but I think it's perhaps that their social lives were the most disrupted. I think for people who were older, they were more likely to be living with partners or with children. They were more likely to have a social circle that was directly connected to them. Whereas I think for younger adults, what we were seeing was that they were more likely to be living alone or living with perhaps just a couple of friends who might then themselves have ended up moving back to other parts of the country. So perhaps less stable or secure social networks, perhaps not having the same levels of community connections with neighbours or people they could draw on within the area within, within, within which they lived. So perhaps a weaker sense of social capital in the way that was most meaningful In providing support in this pandemic?
4: And I think it's worth saying that the younger generation were sort of, there were many whammies, not just a double whammy, in terms of job insecurity, in terms of the recession, in terms of differential impact on younger age groups. So there'd be many reasons why those young adults were particularly adversely affected. I think it is worth saying, as we were saying earlier before our technical challenges, that there are some sort of complexities here. So that for Younger children, 13 to 14-year-olds in the UK, there was actually a dip in levels of anxiety, at least initially in lockdown, which may say something about the anxiety levels that people are experiencing in school settings when they came out of school settings. So there are some sort of cross-currents here around different groups experiencing things differently at different periods.
1: Could I add something to the young people? Just saying that it was pre-COVID that we were already quite concerned about this particular group of people. These are young... um, Uh, girls really young women between the ages of 14 and 24 and as already we have noticed and particularly and of course coming to us and in many reports that there's been this growing epidemic of self-harm amongst uh, the young particularly young women and uh, that's a tremendous concern when when I founded SANE just over 30 years ago and we set up the helpline we would get just the occasional call from a teenage girl with a pen knife who'd sort of quite openly visibly slashed her wrists or taken a small overdose now over 70 percent of all the people calling us are calling about self-harm and it's hidden self-harm secret self-harm it's sometimes so um so uh, dangerous that they have to go to a and e sometimes it ends up in attempted suicide and suicide and this is something that i would say is an epidemic before the pandemic and i think that's what we need to look at because when we go back to a sort of new normal we must look at what are we going to do about these young people particularly these young women and girls uh, who are not seeming to be coping with the stresses of life whether it's social media, whether it's family breakdown, I don't know. But other people may have more answers to that. I
4: think that's exactly right. And it's important to say there was a crisis in youth mental health, particularly of young women before the pandemic. And what the pandemic has done has shone a light onto that and increased some of those uh, inequities and, and uh, gaps between different groups in terms of mental health problems.
0: Has the impact also been different between different ethnic groups?
2: Yes, it has been. We've found that people from Black, Asian, minority ethnic groups have had worse psychological experiences across this pandemic than people from white British backgrounds. And what's a little bit concerning is that when we look at experiences and anxiety, that gap has actually been widening over the last few months, suggesting that we're seeing these adversities and their psychological impact starting to hit even more amongst certain demographic groups than others. And I think to a certain extent, we see part of this explained by socioeconomic factors. So the fact that people from ethnic minority groups are unfortunately more likely to be from lower socioeconomic position backgrounds, but it's not fully explained by this. And there seem to be other contributing factors, notably the fact that over 40% of people from ethnic minority backgrounds have experienced discrimination of some sort over the last eight months of this pandemic.
3: So I think, I think, and I think similarly to the point about young people, COVID has has exacerbated that already that that clear sense of inequality that already existed between um, particularly um, African, African Caribbean, and Black British uh, peoples' experiences of mental health services and uh, and the rest of the community, and also to some extent people from South Asian communities as well. So. Um, I think we already knew that there was a real problem with the experiences, particularly of young um, black men in terms of not getting access to mental health services at the right time and therefore often ending up finding themselves being sectioned or detained in a crisis situation because that early help hadn't been available to them. So in in, in, in very similar way to the young people issue... Covid has just really kind of exposed those inequalities in a way that, um, uh, that 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 we knew were there, but it's really heightened them. And I think, as in the com- combination with the Black Lives Matter movement, I think it's been a real jolt to people about the 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 terrible experiences that many Black people are, are still facing. The the manifestation of people's mental health problems, whether you look at it diagnostically or in, in through other means. Um, you know, it it becomes particularly visible in particular communities. Uh, Perhaps the young people prevalence is a really interesting example. And um, my colleagues will correct me if my numbers are wrong here, but I think we've gone over the last four or five years from one in 10 young people experiencing a mental health problem to one in eight recently. And the most recent data, I think, is suggesting something like one in six young people now experiencing a mental health problem. So we are seeing particular groups in the population where, um, where actual prevalence is shifting. Now, we don't necessarily know whether that's just because when people are more aware of it, the stigma is reducing, more people are coming forward to get help, or whether there is an underlying issue about the nature of society. But I do think, we, but there's no doubt that in particular key groups, prevalence is rising.
1: But just to add to that, I mean, on, on the children, um, one in 14... Um, um, girls, one in ten girls at the age of 14, report that they have attempted suicide. That was a very recent report. I mean, that is quite a shocking figure that I think we need to look at.
0: The other thing that's new is the ubiquity of social media. Have any of you come to any conclusions about the impact of that?
2: We've been looking at this issue, actually, in our research. We've been trying to identify behavioural triggers, as well as broader societal or adversity-based triggers for mental health. And what we've found is that there are two factors that have been particularly bad for mental health across this period, one of which has been increasing usage of social media, which seems to have been associated in subsequent weeks with increasing symptoms of anxiety and depression and decreases in well-being. But what's particularly interesting is, on top of that is that we've seen that people who are spending more time watching the news on COVID have actually also had worsening mental health. So we've got stuck with this paradox where we've had to stay up to date to know what's going on and what we're supposed to be doing behaviourally. But the very behaviour of staying up to date has actually been the worst factor behaviourally for our mental health.
0: Can we look at how we ameliorate some of these mental health impacts of the pandemic Who has any ideas about how long it's going to last? There's going to be a long tail to these effects, isn't there?
2: I think it's not just about how long the tail of the virus is, but I think it's also about the tail of the mental health effects of this. And I think we're seeing that lots of the initial triggers may have dampened down. I think people aren't as scared of the virus as they were nine months ago. But we're now seeing other triggers that are getting worse. So, for example, I think we're going to see rising levels of unemployment continuing beyond this as schemes like furlough stop and we actually start to see the delayed impact of that. We're going to see rising financial issues, poverty issues, increasing inequalities in society. The fact there'll be such a catch up in waiting lists for both mental and physical health support through the health service and also uh, layered problems like recessions or Brexit on top of this. And I think these are things that are likely to cause longer term mental health problems that could be with us for years into the future. And I think there's a danger that because the majority of people are feeling much better than they were at the start, we might be falsely reassured into thinking that the mental health impact of this pandemic is improving. But I think we mustn't forget that smaller percentage, but nonetheless significant number of people Who are actually still experiencing poorer mental health and for some it's getting worse and will
4: continue to get worse over the months and even years to come. If I come in here just from a point of view of the Wellcome Trust which is a sort of big research funder this is why we're committing uh, billions of pounds to trying to find better treatments and the next generation of treatments and approaches for young people with anxiety and depression. For the last 50 years we've had two approaches primarily medication and talking therapies but there's a whole panoply of things that we want to investigate and look at which range from how societies structure themselves right through to addressing brain inflammation or diet right through to different ways that people think and feel so there's a massive research agenda here that needs to be really pushed forward if we're going to find the next generation of approaches that are going to make the difference for the scale of the problem that we've got
0: is society going to change as a consequence of this I mean,
4: in relation to mental health. I, I, I think that's, a, that's the million dollar question. Um, and I think we all hope it will check that this is a moment of opportunity where it will change for the better. As we all know from who've studied history, often things don't change as much as one would like or in ways that are unexpected or unanticipated at the time. So I think there's a real opportunity here for us to learn lessons and do things in a different way. Whether we as society will seize that opportunity and do things differently, I think it's up to us communally.
0: Marjorie, what do you think about how Britain is going to be going forward after this epidemic? Marjorie, what do you think Britain will be like after the epidemic?
1: Well, I hope that uh, at last some lessons are going to be learned. I hope, for instance, that mental health services will be much, much more attuned to people when they're reaching a point of crisis and realise that the longer people wait to get counselling or to get some help, the more entrenched the illness becomes, the harder it is to treat. What I also hope is it's a huge wake-up call to how we are, where we are in mental health. I mean... You know, I've been looking at it over 30-something years. I'm a journalist like you, but I've been observing it for 30 years. And what is really sad is that we've made so much progress in other illnesses, but in the research into the mind and the body and why one person, why one young person can have the same background, the same traumas, and be tipped over the edge and the other person can ride it, we still don't know. There's no vaccination that we can have to prevent any sort of depression and other illnesses. And we don't have any morphine when the pain becomes intolerable. We have so little to offer people. Really, what we have still is mainly words and trust in one person to whom they can tell their story and whom they believe. And that is what's being fragmented in the mental health services. And I think that I hope we learn the lesson that we get a much more straightforward way of having a one-on-one relationship with the trust and that we actually now research new treatments and I know you are at the welcome very much but I mean there are a few new treatments but basically most people are living on antidepressants at 30 years old Um, there's almost no new one there's one new one that's coming but it hasn't got nice approval yet for the rest of it we're relying on very very old treatments i hope this will make people say that mental illness is the new challenge is going to be the real challenge of medicine
0: Why have we become so much more fragile, do you think?
1: Um, we've become more fragile. But well, partly I think we are getting more aware. There's been a lot of these anti-stigma campaigns, which you know Paul and people like that have been doing, so people are slightly more aware. Then they go to these apps, not that I'm very good at it, where they sort of medicalise what they're feeling. And I think, you know, the the, the, the whole... I'm a slightly an old stoic uh, philosophy person, and I I sort of feel that a little bit of that you have to live with mental illness, which is relapsing, which comes and goes, much as you have to live maybe with viruses that come and go. And a little bit of that grit, that steely quality is needed. But that needs um, people delivering care and treatment that fits a person and not the kind of pills that they take and they don't know what they're doing and they give them terrible side effects. It needs a lot more rigorous thought and care and then people will strengthen up again. But also, I think we need to be careful about the narrative that
4: positions the younger generation as somehow more fragile or snowflakes in some way. I think people have shown enormous resilience and enormous courage and creativity in very, very difficult times. And when we look at what people have done under under lockdown and during COVID to come together in terms of mutual aid societies, in terms of volunteering, in terms of supporting each other, in terms of community spirit, I think you've got to remember that actually there's a huge amount of strength in people that people are bringing to the fore and we've got to take that forward into the future and not lose it.
3: Paul would you like to add anything to that? Yeah I think well I think first of all um, probably the vast majority of this country now understands a little bit more about what thinking about your mental health means. Uh, It's all come a lot closer to us. We've had to realise that uh, this thing called mental health is something we need to pay a bit more attention to and I think that's been a positive um, thing. I think it's it's important that we don't Pathologize ordinary emotions like grief and loss, um, and 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 in some to some extent loneliness and isolation. These are perfectly normal emotions for people to have, and we mustn't automatically assume that that means that people need clinical care. But we do, but 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 we do need to make sure that people can ha- think about the tools that they can use to. Um, uh, support themselves and maybe people around them when people are struggling and also make sure that when people do need clinical care, that that care is available for them. And although uh, strides have been made both in awareness and to some extent in investment in mental health services, The reality is that still only round about one in three of the people who need clinical care will actually get it. So we've still got a long way to go before people, before the NHS has reached the levels that uh, we've come to expect for our physical health care. So I think in a way what we're beginning, what we're really seeing now is the sort of manifestation of the reality of the mental health picture in this country, which is large numbers of people uh, thriving, coping very well, actually able to manage their mental health extremely well. A, a, a good a good number of people whose risk factors are ratcheting up, becoming more, becoming greater, mainly in the next few months, I think, particularly as a result of the financial consequences of COVID. Um, and then a bunch of people with existing mental health problems who are still struggling to necessarily get all the help and support they need. So, you know, there's there's more to be done, but I do actually think that the kind of consciousness of the public has really been raised on this, and that will help to drive change along with the investment that we need to see in further clinical treatments
0: Paul, where do you get a figure like three in one people need mental health help
3: so one thing that's one thing that 's changed significantly in, in, N, in mental health NHS work over the last five or six years is we actually had now have much better data about. Uh, who is able to access care and what the kind of o- in relation to the overall prevalence rate. So, when we started on the five year full review for mental health, which is now in its fifth year, um, the, uh, we, were going, we were looking at in some among some key groups, including for example among young people, uh, that the, the rate of people who were getting, getting the help was round about one in four, and that's now improved to round about one in three now uh you know that's that's nhs kind of track data so we're now getting a better sense we're helping the system is now helping more people but we also know that a lot of people just don't get the help and support they need there's a variety of reasons for that sometimes it's because people don't come forward to seek help they feel as though they can't they don't either don't need help or don't want help um and uh and also there are there are big challenges in many parts of the, of the NHS with actually being able to access, um, access care, that, care and help that they need. So there's a combination of reasons, but the, the picture is slowly but surely improving. Oh, and of course, the biggest issue inside mental health services is the availability of um, trained staff, doctors, nurses, um, psychologists, uh, to be able to, to provide, provide care.
4: And I think it's important to add, though, that of those that do access help, about half of people who see the best help available will get better, and about half won't. So, we're still really struggling with finding effective treatments, even once people have accessed. I think we need to be really clear that we still are in search of the next generation of approaches that are really going to make the difference to people's lives, which doesn't mean exactly as Paul said, we need to get people to have access to what's available, for some of whom it is life saving, but we also need not to be complacent that what we've got is good enough. We need to find the next generation if we're going to actually make a dent in this thing
1: that affects so many people. Can I can I just go back on what Paul referred to as the shortages? I mean, we have for the last figure I looked at, we have um, eighteen uh, uh, thousand uh, uh, consultants to a hundred thousand people, and in other countries that uh, that's double or treble. We have a huge shortage of experienced psychiatric nurses. I know they're trying to train them up and we have lost almost half the psychiatric beds. I mean, at the moment, people are still going out as we speak. They're still going out of area to find an available bed somewhere in the country. And this is during lockdown. So they can't be visited by their families. They can't be visited by friends. And this is happening literally as we speak. So these are huge shortages that we need to do something urgently about that, prioritise them, along with the, what we would do for, like nightingale hospitals for COVID. We need to get those people not sent, sent around the country but actually having local crisis care if they can't be on their own in the community.
0: We're accustomed to talk of things getting better. Do you four professionals in the field think things are getting better?
3: Personally, I do think I think things are getting better because they have been really awful. And uh, for far too long, the stigma and the kind of lack of systemic lack of funding for mental health services has meant that it has been the poor relation, the Cinderella of uh, of the health service and indeed, to some extent, of wider society. But I do think over the last 10 years, we've seen an increase in public awareness and understanding about the issue. And people like you, Jeremy, have helped with that enormously. Uh, but but And alongside that, that has led to more people with their own experiences being open. And that alongside has led to greater political priority. Um, it probably hasn't helped that that greater political priority has arrived during first... Of all uh, a, a an austerity period, and then secondly a global pandemic. But uh, I think the trajectory and the proportion, the kind of proportionality of investment in mental health services is is grow, is growing. And uh, as colleagues have said, the challenge for the it is probably likely to be one of the big challenges for the next ten years for the health service, for the research community, and for wider society. And I think the you know the the the, the quicker we all become fully aware of that, the enormity of this challenge, then I think the best, the quicker we'll be able to, to, to deliver change. But I do think that we're moving in the right direction.
2: I agree with Paul's optimism, but I, I just have a, a slight uh, concern that with COVID, we've seen an exacerbation of existing inequalities within society. And I think it a lot of the mental health response to that over the coming few years will depend on what measures are taken to try and reduce those inequalities again. I think uh, we need to see, for example, the gap between high and low income households helping to be reduced back to at least what it was before this pandemic. And ideally still trying to continue that trend of reductions. Also things like gender equality. Um, that have been adversely affected by what's happened in this pandemic. And I feel that if these inequalities aren't addressed, then that will, in turn, um, slow down the progress that we'll make in terms of progress in mental
4: health. Completely agree. And I think until we see mental health and mental health solutions as bigger than mental health care and healthcare solutions, we are always going to be stymied with actually being able to deal with this issue at scale. So issues around how we build jobs, how we create fair societies are also mental health issues and seeing mental health at the heart of those policies will be absolutely crucial if we're going to progress.
1: But um, I do feel a little bit sad about what has happened to mental health because we've had this tectonic shift in awareness, absolutely extraordinary change. Now, when I started off, everyone confused mental illness and mental handicap. And now that isn't the case. People do know about mental illness. They know about conditions like depression. They know about post-traumatic stress disorder. That's been a huge change, but sadly, The services and the treatments and the care offered has not been reaching these people. They still are ringing up saying they've got nowhere to turn. And in fact, I would like to just add, it's the families that we sort of feel suffer most in a way because they have very, very few rights and they have very, very little support. And if we could do a little bit more for the families, then I think we would have a much brighter future.
0: The real question for a health economist is, surely, how do you decide how many instances of mental ill health can be equaled by what number of avoided deaths in a pandemic? How do you balance these things?
1: Well, did you hear that amazing remark on the moral maze, I think it was, from a, the economy recovers, but you can't recover from death. And um, I think there's lots of other things, you know, you ha- if you're looking at weighing up the the sort of effects on people who will get COVID and are dying, you've got to also look on the fact that it's actually, it can be quite life-threatening to people who have severe major depressive disorder and um, other mental illnesses. And so, though it may be on a longer term, that death, it it's, it's sort of has to be treated almost as equal.
0: Daisy, what have you found has been the effect on suicidal thoughts and occurrences?
2: Well, We've been seeing quite concerningly high levels of people reporting thoughts about suicide across this pandemic. Interestingly, when we actually look at some of the data that started to come through on um, suicide rates, so far the evidence in the UK hasn't suggested that these have gone up substantially over the past year. However, we have seen from other countries that that has sometimes happened. For example, in Nepal, the suicide rate has been worse than usual. And also in countries like Bangladesh and Pakistan, where the economic impacts have been particularly harsh, we've seen a relationship between these economic hardships and suicides. Uh, But there are other places where actually uh, protection from some of the adversities, like in Japan, where they've had uh, very generous economic efforts to support individuals, these have actually helped to uh, lower suicide levels beyond what was expected. But I think in the UK, we have to be cautious about being reassured so far about the consistency of suicide rates, because of course, every death that happens through suicide is a tragedy in itself, and there have still been these suicides happening. But also many of the things that are typical triggers for suicide, things like loss of employment or major loss of income, these are the kinds of things that actually some people have been buffered against so far by things like furlough schemes. But actually over the next year as these come to a close and as we start to see a broader economic impacts of things like recession, it's possible that we then might start seeing changes in suicide rates. So I think we have to be uh, vigilant and cautious about these uh, about these suicide effects and make sure we're continuing to monitor and try and do anything we can to prevent those getting worse not just now but over the coming year or so
0: what a depressing thought
4: can i move to a more optimistic thought and possibly ask you a question jeremy if that was okay go on so at the welcome one that one of our research agendas to try and find this next generation of approaches to depression and to anxiety in young people is going to transform the world by 2030 that's our our vision and our aim one of the ways we're trying to do that is to look at the full range of things that are available currently and try and apply a scientific gaze to things like um, gardening and exploring nature and having links with friends and families as we do to use of antidepressants and talking to a trusted therapist and doing cbt and i know you've spoken for example about you know taking medication and uh, having cbt and walking your dog and i'm just interested does that model of active ingredients resonate with you and if so could you grade those as which has been most important or is it the combination of them for you so i'm just was sort of interested in how that felt for you as someone that was in a way representing what we see as being so important people with lived experience of mental health problems helping us think what are the what are ways forward that might be thinking beyond the boxes we have currently
0: but, of course, pills are the most convenient and one of the most time-consuming is therapy. I just found the thing that really gets me going is walking the dog or going to the pub or going fishing. Those are the things that really help.
4: Really help. And do you find those three things, do they work in a virtuous cycle so that when you're doing them, you do all of them more? Or is it one that's that a route in for you that then opens up the other two or one that's more important than the other two?
0: The good thing about walking the dog is that it demands to be taken out. And the consequences, if you don't, are very unpleasant.
4: And and it might be worth showing you there's some research we've just commissioned looking at, which would link to Walking the Dog, looking at people's access to green spaces in an urban environment and finding that as little as 15 minutes in a green space makes a difference to people's symptoms of depression. So it may be that actually that act of going out and the hypothesis about that is it might help with mindfulness, it might help with physical oxygen levels, it might help with seeing other people, it might help with engagement with nature. There may be a whole range of mechanisms, but it may be those activities themselves may have therapeutic effects that we have yet to fully scientifically discover and engage and
1: make use of.
0: I agree. And indeed, physical exercise, just getting fresh air and stretching your legs.
1: Jeremy, it's great about going walks and and so on but the sort of people that are contacting us and people i know they they can't get out of the house and um they also feel a little bit demeaned i mean one person i was just reading they they then they were really feeling suicidal really desperate and they were said oh why don't you just go for a sort of bit of a run why don't you take a bath why don't you go to sleep well sleep is the very thing that they couldn't do and sometimes it's it's a little bit too easy to put those sorts of solutions i i think we need to sort of say you know for those that are able to do it there are some great answers but there are some people we need to reach in other ways i I agree with you marjorie but i would take
4: some issue here that i think the science needs to really look at both those things Uh, in great detail so we don't really know yet for people even with severe major depressive disorder we don't know what are the most effective interventions for them and we know that talking therapies and pills aren't the answer for many of those people I agree with you that sort of being told take a hot bath and go for a walk can feel like they're brush-offs We need to make sure they're not brushless and those things are explored with the same scientific rigour as the talking therapies and pills and if we think those things are important we need to find structures to help people do that, whether it's through peer support, whether it's through behavioural activation, whether it's through other sort of interventions. But I think we have to be really careful as a community not to put sort of healthcare solutions and self-care solutions in opposition to each other. We don't know enough about either and we need to look at the active ingredients that may be within both of them. So I suppose I just would take slight issue at somehow seeing these as less as more minor things and less important than, say, taking a medication or talking to someone.
0: The implications of this are enormous, aren't they? They feed into everything, into architecture, into urban planning, the whole lot.
4: 100%. And so one of the other commissions we just looked at was the issue of neighbourhood cohesion and how you build communities for neighbourhood cohesion. There's a fascinating study recently out by an economist and neuroscientist called Johannes Haushofer. He did a randomised controlled trial in Kenya where he put families randomly into getting cash, to having psychotherapy and cash and to having psychotherapy alone over a one-year period and then looked at mental health outcomes. Which, do you guess, was the most effective? You've got psychotherapy alone, psychotherapy plus cash, just cash.
0: Psychotherapy and
4: cash. Psychotherapy and cash was no more effective than just cash. Do you know what the cost, which was the cheapest of those options? Cash or psychotherapy?
0: Psychotherapy.
4: Cash. By about half. These are radical, radical findings, and we are just at the start of looking at these issues because we've had our minds closed by thinking there's healthcare interventions and then there are others. We've got to start exploring much wider what are the impacts.
2: I think the thing that's funny in all of this is that the types of activities that we've now been talking about as potential uh, good things for mental health, potential routes forward in the way we think about treatment for mental health, these are things that we've been using for millennia. They're things that we used to automatically think were part of healthy living, but they're things that we've often withdrawn from over the last couple of hundred years, particularly over the last few decades. So I think a lot of this is reconnecting with the kinds of innate human behaviours that we've always engaged in as a species to support our well-being but we're only now actually starting to appreciate in terms of how tangible that impact actually is.
0: What an interesting point.
1: One last sort of thing that what we say to people is maybe what's happening is that we have too high expectations of our happiness and of our mental well-being and in a way we sort of say, well, don't expect to do all the things that you set yourself out to do. Don't expect to recover within sort of one week or two weeks. Just just try and be a little bit kinder on yourself and lower some of your expectations. And then gradually your inner resources will begin to flourish again. I mean, the other
4: thing to note, and it's that there's a great study by Schaefer et al. from 2017, where they followed up people longitudinally in... New Zealand followed in a thousand people over time. What they found, and they looked every few years to look at mental health symptoms. What they found was that 87% of those people had one diagnosable mental health problem at least by the time they're 38. So they are suggesting that actually the human condition may not be one of enduring mental health, and in fact the the lucky 13% that never have a mental health trouble are the odd lot. They're the ones with enduring mental health. For most people, they will dip in and out of mental health problems. How much they dip in and out will vary. And I think one of the problems is that the research has focused only on those at the chronic end, and has missed out on the people that have it once and then not again. So we've missed out on those natural learnings about how people recover, because we've excluded them from the research. So actually trying to understand that this is is part of the human condition, but we need to make it such that it doesn't hold people back. And we also need to be sensitive to some people for whom it is chronic and completely life-changing in horrible ways, but also for other people who they find ways through and to live with it. And we need to learn from both those groups.
0: That's very interesting, yes. What an intriguing way to look at it. Thanks so much to all of you. It's been a real pleasure. Well, there you are another slightly off-agenda episode inspired by these miserable times. If anyone is listening to this and is in need of help, we've posted some links to resources in the notes on this podcast. So do please read them and take action if you need to. It's tough for a lot of people at the moment, I know. So look after yourselves and each other.